0: Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. As we're winding down our study in the book of Nehemiah, just a few more chapters to go. Very fascinating book for me because ultimately this is a book about leadership. It's a book about Nehemiah and how God used him to do a monumental work in Israel in his day and in his age. We saw in the opening chapters of the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah served as the wine tester to the king Artaxerxes. And we found that his brother had come to him with a message that the situation in Jerusalem was not good. That the walls had been torn down, that the people had been in disarray and had been discouraged. And so this affected Nehemiah to the core of his being. So much so that when he went to serve the king, the king saw that his spirit was downtrodden. And he asked Nehemiah, what is the problem? What's going on? How is it that you look the way that you do? And Nehemiah shared with him that he had heard about the city of Jerusalem, the place of his heritage and of his people, where God had set his name and his presence. And now the walls had been torn down, and life was ebbing out from this central place of Israel's history and legacy. And so the king permitted Nehemiah with help to go back to Jerusalem to make a difference. When he returns to Jerusalem, he surveys the scene And he then begins to organize the inhabitants of Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. By chapter 7 or 8 or so, the walls are up. It took him 52 days from the point at which he started to build until its conclusion. Nearly about a year has transpired, or nine months or so, from when he first heard of the need and now has brought the need to conclusion, and the walls are up. But Nehemiah's goal was not just building walls. It was not just laying concrete and mortar and stone upon stone. His real purpose was to rebuild his people, to revitalize them, and to give them hope. And so in chapters 8, 9, and 10 or so, we have these images and recordings of a revival that the people of Israel began to experience in Jerusalem. In chapter eight or so, I may have my chapters mixed up, but in chapter eight, Ezra is placed onto a platform above the people so that everyone could see him. And he takes out the word of God, he unrolls it, unscrolls it so that he would be able to read it. Flanked on his right and left are fellow priests, seven on one side six on the other. And as he begins to read the word of God, which hadn't gone on for decades now, publicly before the people, as he reads the word of God, and as fellow Levites are translating the word, remember, these are Jewish people that returned from Persia and Babylon. No longer did they speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, the common language. So much of what they heard, they couldn't understand. So these fellow Levites were translating. They begin to fan out among the crowd, and they not only translate, but they begin to give meaning and understanding to the words that were being presented. As the word of God is presented and made clear, the people begin to respond, and they look deep into their hearts, And they begin to question, are we living the way God's word instructs us to live? And they begin to mourn because they hadn't been. They begin to express their sorrowfulness of heart and their desire to repent and to turn toward God. The sorrowing and repentance becomes so intense that Nehemiah and Ezra both instruct the people of Israel to go to their homes to eat Together And to celebrate, because this is a time of celebration, the walls are up, the Word of God is being presented. But as the Word is presented, they're moved to sorrow. Over the next few days, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They gather back again to hear Ezra read the Word and for the Levites to explain it. As it is further read and understood... The people not only begin to respond by repenting of their sin, but then they move to do something about it. They determine that they will live differently. And they are so committed to this that they actually write out on paper, sign their name on the dotted line, that they would promise to follow the Lord in the ways that he would lead. They made an open, public confession of their devotion and dedication to follow the ways of God. Once this revival has hit and the people have been moved to change and to live differently, Nehemiah's work is still not completed. In chapter 11, what we begin to see is that the city becomes repopulated. So I asked myself, as I'm reading this passage in in Nehemiah chapter 11, why did Nehemiah bother to build the walls in the first place? There were very few people living in Jerusalem at the time. If there were more people in Jerusalem, we wouldn't need chapter 11. But there aren't many people living in Jerusalem. And so why does Nehemiah bother to rebuild the walls? And I think the reason is his love for the city. Jerusalem is the heartthrob of the Jewish people. In fact, if you look at Psalm 137, I want to read it carefully rather than sort of just paraphrase. But in Psalm 137, a psalm of reflection as the people are in exile in Babylon. The psalmist writes, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. And the question is, why? If it was me, I might have sat and wept because I might have been removed from my family. I might have sat and wept because I was in a foreign land that I wasn't familiar with the territory. Maybe I would have sat and wept because I couldn't understand the culture or language of the people. But that's not why the psalmist is sorrowful. He tells us because he remembered Zion. When he remembered Jerusalem in his place of exile, he was moved to sorrow and weeping. He says in verse 2, There on the poplars we sung, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. I think it's really interesting that Jerusalem is associated with a place of joy, A place of celebration, because that's where the Lord dwells. That's where his temple stood. That's where the worship of God was most full and free. And so their tormentors are telling them, play us some of those songs from Jerusalem. Play us some of those songs that reflect your worship of your God who has been vanquished. They were tormenting them to play these worshipful, celebrative songs now that they have been removed from their land. And the text goes on to say, They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. In verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So why was Nehemiah moved to build walls around a city where no one lived? Because he loved the city. And he loved the city because of what it stood for. It stood for the very presence of God in the midst of his people. But now the question remains, why did people move into that city? Remember, when they rebuilt the walls and people begin to re-inhabit it, people are resistant to Nehemiah's desire To head back into Jerusalem. The walls were down. And therefore there was a security risk. That they faced. And if the security was in place. They had a lot of work to do. In clearing the rubble that remained inside the walls. Even if much of the rubble has been used outside the walls. To rebuild those walls. So what does Nehemiah do? Take a look at this in Nehemiah chapter 11. First of all in verse 1. The first people to settle in Jerusalem are the leaders of the people. Many of the Jewish people were living in suburbs around the city. They had vacated the city because of the dangers and settled outside. I just can't help but think of how people are removing themselves from even our modern cities to dwell in the suburbs where it's safer, where it's cleaner, where it's nicer. Nehemiah is calling the people back to the city where God is to be praised and where the city will begin to swell. The first are the leaders. By example, they head back into the city of Jerusalem. But then there are some who are resistant and they are forced to return. In fact, they have a lottery and they begin to cast lots and one out of ten upon whom the lot would indicate were to move and to resettle in the city of Jerusalem. But that's not all. Not only did the leaders lead the way by entering the city, not only were some forced to enter by virtue of the lottery that was cast, but then there were those that volunteered. Look at verse 2. It says, "...the people commended all the men who volunteered." To live in Jerusalem. And they were greatly blessed. Now, what remains in chapter 11 are the names of individuals who no, none of us really know. Not much is said about these individuals. There are two individuals in this list that we might know more about, but they are distant descendants. For example, one individual is mentioned who is a descendant of Perez who is mentioned in the book of Genesis as one of the descendants of Seth and that righteous line. Another one that's mentioned is a descendant of Asaph. Of course, Asaph was one of the psalmists who wrote a number of psalms in the book of Psalms. But the rest of the people that are listed are for the most part unknown individuals. We don't know who they are, and yet, Their names made the book and are listed among individuals who had entered Jerusalem and not only entered, but served. Take a look at this. In verse 12, for example, Well, first of all, he mentions descendants of Judah, Benjamin, and then the priests. But notice some of the people that he mentions. He mentions, first of all, in verse 12, and there were those who carried on the work for the temple, 822 men back around 80 years before the temple has been rebuilt. And now we're reading about some priests, 822 of them, who now return to Jerusalem and serve inside the temple. So what did these servants inside the temple do? These individuals would have been responsible for making sure the table of showbread and the bread upon it was set up appropriately in the holy place. Those that were assigned to work inside the temple set up the altar of incense that stood before the Holy of Holies and would have lit that altar of incense representing the prayers of the Jewish people morning and evening. Some of these priests would have served in making sure that the seven branch menorah in the temple area would have been kept perpetually lit, signifying the very glory and presence of God dwelling among his people. Some would have been assigned to deal with the sheep, to inspect them, to make sure that they were qualified to be used as sacrifices. Some of them would have been those that had sacrificed the animals upon the altar. Some of those would have been working on the altar. Some of those would have been providing wood that was used to burn the fire upon which the sacrifices were placed. Some of those would have maintained the lava that the priests would have done their ritualistic washing. Some of them would have kept clean the court of the women, the court of the Israelites, and made sure that the temple was in operating order. Now, if you look further in Nehemiah, we're told that there were not only those that worked inside the temple, but take a look at verse 16. There were other Levites who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. So there were those that were charged with certainly the beautifying of the properties outside the temple. But I think more is meant here because the priests were ones who served and ministered to the people. So they must have gone out to the various homes, whether inside Jerusalem or outside in the suburbs, and ministered to the people. They probably met with them, taught them God's word, instructed them in what the word of God meant and how to apply it to their lives. They must have been involved in some kind of counseling whereby they were encouraging people who were struggling. They were no doubt dispensing some benevolent funds for individuals that might have needed that. There were others that were probably involved with some of the civil work that was going on and some of the civil leaders in the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. So here we have priests assigned both inside and outside the temple grounds. Take a look further in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 11. Then we read of this individual, Mattaniah. We have no idea who he is, but he was a son of Asaph, one of our writers of the Psalms. And this one, Mattaniah, was the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. So now we not only have individuals assigned to work in the temple and outside, but individuals who were assigned to a specific spiritual, we call it that, task, namely prayer and thanksgiving. These were individuals that interceded for the people of Israel, looked to the Lord for his strength and the imparting of his grace. These were those that led individuals in being thankful for what God had provided. They had a spiritual work to do in addressing the hearts of the people by devoting themselves to prayer and to thanksgiving. Take a look further. Not only do we have one who is doing this, but then if we go down to, I think it's like verse uh, verse 20, Verse 22, then we have another one of Asaph's descendants who were the singers. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants. We don't know who Uzi was, but he was one of the singers responsible for the service of the house of God. And so we read now of individuals serving inside the temple, outside the temple. Individuals devoted to prayer and thanksgiving. Individuals who were devoted to singing and giving praise to God. We read of others that were overseeing settlements and others that served the people of Israel as they repopulated the city. What strikes me about this passage, and you can read down into chapter 12, is how God used these individuals to bring about the completion of the work. It wasn't merely Nehemiah, but it was the people of Israel, some of whom made sacrifices to enter the city, the leaders leading the way into the city, those who volunteered that gave of themselves willingly to enter the city, those who were compelled to go and did respond and went, and all of them shared their abilities and their talents for the city to be rebuilt and to be reestablished. Now, there are a number of lessons I think that we can glean from this passage. The first is that while things may be done a certain way, oftentimes God uses a variety of ways to accomplish his tasks. And therefore, we ought never to think that it's my way or the highway. On the one hand, people were brought back into the city by way of a lottery, while others were brought back into the city by volunteering and giving of themselves. In other words, there's never just one way to do things, but rather God can lead us to do things in a variety of ways, even the same thing in a variety of ways. And so we ought always to be open to creativity, and always to be open to God's spirit and leading to do things as he may lead. And it may be two different ways at the same time as we see here. A second thing that strikes me by way of lessons to be learned is that some things take a long time to occur. Other things may take a short time to occur. For example, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls in 52 days. It didn't take him long once he surveyed the need Organized the people, it was done. But the repopulating of the city took a long time. It would be some 400 years before Jerusalem would become the teeming city it would become during the time of Yeshua. It would be 2,000 years later that Jerusalem would be the city that it is today. Some things can happen quickly, but some things take a great deal of time to accomplish, And so therefore, we need to be patient in waiting on God. And therefore, we need to be wise with regard to what things we can do right away and those things that we can't. The third thing that strikes me by way of lesson is the importance of service. Even service that may go somewhat unacknowledged. These are individuals we don't know anything about. They sort of are sacrificial unknowns. But their work was essential to what was accomplished. And while we may not know who they are and what their lives consisted on, they were individuals that gave of themselves to the service of the Lord. It makes me think of our own congregation and many congregations and churches across the country and across around the world. The work that goes on goes on by the silent majority that are oftentimes not recognized and work behind the scenes. Nehemiah could not have pulled off this job of rebuilding the walls, or repopulating the city, unless individuals had done the work that they had done. Work that perhaps we of people, we may not know. And so I think about our own ministry. There are so many things that go on here behind the scenes for which I particularly am extremely grateful for because there are things I don't have to really concern myself with or focus on so I can do the, what I am here to do, which is essentially to minister to the body. That's why I've been called here, not merely to teach from the pulpit or in a home, but to minister to the best of my ability by the grace of God with the gifts that he's entrusted to me. But if I was worried about all of the logistics that go on behind the scenes, I don't know how I would accomplish that. When I think of our staff here at Beth Ariel, a person like Michelle, a person like Jean, a person like Scott, a person like Edward, just imagine those four or five individuals were not here what would happen? We wouldn't have the organization that Michelle provides for us. We wouldn't have the financial accountability and recording if Gene was not here. We wouldn't have our website and our um, uh, advertising and social media stuff going on if it wasn't for Scott. We wouldn't have our worship this morning with the sounds and lights and, uh, and all of that if it wasn't for Edward. So these are critical pieces to the puzzle for what goes on here at Beth Ariel. This morning, we had a major, major crisis. You wouldn't know that though, would you? We're very joyful and happy. But we had a major crisis. That side of the sanctuary is out electrically. So now we're figuring, how are we gonna plug all our stuff in? Are we gonna do this acoustically? Well, Edward figured out a way to get all the stuff coordinated but then we couldn't get the screen down. And maybe it was 10 minutes before or so that we learned that in the offices behind here, and there's a whole uh, suite of offices behind this wall, and we don't have a key to those offices, that there is an electrical panel. And that electrical panel is what the switch needed to be dealt with, and so we went downstairs to La Casetta. we got in there, and Edward is just pushing buttons and boom, the screen comes down. That is one small, seemingly insignificant matter that required the unknowns, the -the behind-the-scenes personnel to make things happen here so that we can worship the way we would like. We would still worship God but it wouldn't be the way that it just was. It would have been much more, much different, perhaps more anemically than what we just experienced. But it takes these people behind the scenes those that work inside the temple, as it were, like these individuals in Nehemiah. There are those that work outside the temple that sort of are off our radar. There are people that come and they water these plants. Darren, who's on the property, waters these plants. And when they're forgotten, somebody's doing it because I see water out there. I know that Maria comes out here occasionally, and I think when she's here, she gets water and puts them on the plants. She doesn't tell me that she's doing this. She just does it. But if she doesn't do it, those plants die like they did a few months ago. And then some people outside the scene bought new plants and have come and watered them. But we don't know who they are. Well, you don't know who they are. Or some of you may not know who they are. (laughs) They're the unknowns who are essential to the work. Of course, Eleanor comes and has come for the three years we've been here every morning with or without anyone else. And she's up there praying while we are rehearsing, recording. She's praying for you. Praying for me, I hope, and praying for what goes on, like Mattaniah or one of those guys that we don't know, who is devoted to prayer and thanksgiving, like Mitch and Linda and Beverly and anyone else that wants to pray for one another, devoting themselves to prayer. But we sort of just go on out to the brick room for Nash, or we hang here and talk, but there's a group of people who unknowns, perhaps, you mean I not even know their names, but they're here and they're praying, like this individual who is devoted to prayer and thanksgiving. Outside the congregation, I'm not going to name everyone, but outside the congregation, there are people who open their homes, like Bob and Dup and Chuck and Merrill and Sandy and Eileen and others, that open their homes so that we can gather for fellowship reflection on God's word, and in our case, observe the Shabbat. So when we arrive, I can speak for Eileen and Sandy, I don't know who does these things, but all the chairs are lined up. We had about 30 people this past Friday. If you don't belong to a home group, whether at Van Nuys or over in Chatsworth, you should, because number one, you're missing out on a good thing. Number two, we're missing out on a good thing. And all of us need each other to grow. And it's not enough to come Sunday morning or Shabbat morning in, on, in September and think that will do the trick. We need community. We need one another. And so the chairs are all lined up. A box is set up so I can put my projector on. Everything is set, ready to go. Refreshments are put out. And it's all just there. It's done by unknown individuals who want us to be blessed, who want us to hear God's word without any encumbrances, who want us to relax and enjoy one another, who want us to minister to one another. But if that didn't happen, what would we be? Last Friday was particularly exciting for me because they were expressing their gratitude for my ministry. And... Donna although she doesn't want to be told so forget that but Donna baked a cake that lime was keeping me from seeing beforehand that just blew me away i mean this is a this is a cake of all cakes Donna had Donna had a metal worker is that right metal worker mold my guitar that Edward uses when he remembers to bring it. My Takamani guitars. They were here last week, two weeks ago, taking photographs of it. And it's life-size. It, it was four inches thick or whatever, and it was, as long, it was like the guitar. And it ate wonderfully. <laughs> and this giant chocolate guitar I have it on my thing., yeah, I'll show you, I have it on my phone. And I should have had it. It is I'll bring it next week. But my point in that, she just did that to bring joy to my heart. You know? She just did that to celebrate the unknown behind-the-scene worker who knew that she, I knew she could make cupcakes. But I had no idea she could make a guitar cake. You know, she worked days on that cake. And it was a blessing to all of us. It was Donna. And it was an amazing display of artistic creativity. It takes all of us to make it, whatever that is, happen the ministry here. Some final thoughts. We need to figure out what we do you need to figure out what spiritual gifts God has given you. Let me give you some pointers as to how you can find them out. Because God is not trying to hold out on you any more than he's trying to hold himself out from you or his gift of salvation. The way you figure out your gifts is very simple. Ask yourself, what do you like to do? Because God is not going to make you do something you despise. Now, He could want to change you to do some things that may not be natural, but I would look first where you find your comfort zone and what you like to do. God will lead you in the way that he's already made you and therefore expect it will be somewhat like who you are and something like what you enjoy doing. The second thing I would say, of course, all these things is bathed in prayer for God to make it known to you. The second thing I would say is to try different things. It's not like we got to hit a thousand, you know? A baseball player who's great at baseball hits three out of ten. So you don't have to hit a thousand every time. You don't have to hit a home run. You can try things. If it fails, it's simply you've succeeded in finding something God has not led you to do. That's all it is. You go to the next step. God's got something for you. Don't give up on what God has for you by depriving yourself of trying different things. Because God will show up in one of those things, and you'll say, "Ah, that's what it is." Try things. Secondly, talk to others. How do other people see you? What do they see? is significant, or how have you contributed already to someone? There's just three simple ways to figure out what it is God's crafted you to do. It reminds me of Exodus chapter 35, when all these builders and crafters come together to build a tabernacle. Some were good with needle and thread. Some were good with leather. Some were good with color coordinating, some were good with carving and crafting. Some were good with metal as metal workers. And so they all came together with what their particular gifts were to make the one thing to the glory of God. So there is a place that God has for you that goes beyond attending services. We need to be thinking about, where do we give, not just from our pockets but from our hearts and from our hands and from our feet. How does God want us to contribute apart from our financial giving in making Beth Ariel more what he wants it to be and leading to you becoming more of what God wants you to be as well? Though your work may not be noticed, It is necessary. Though you may not think it is observed, it is essential. It is critical, though it may never make us famous. Like these guys. Who's Mataniah? Who's Uzi? Did become famous. But he was important to the work and he was essential to that work. But here's another matter, and that is even though we may be off the radar to one another. We're never off the radar to God. Let me show you a really neat passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. If you ever feel forgotten, if you ever feel unappreciated, if you ever feel that no one really appreciates what I am doing or care, and you may be right, you may be right, there is always one person who always cares and is always aware of what you have done. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So while we in our sinfulness in our ignorance or even in our just not being there when we should be. God always is. And he will never, ever forget your work that is for the glory of himself and for others. Your work is essential to what goes on here. And while we may not become famous for whatever our part is. God will always remember our work, for he is just. And one day, we will be rewarded by him with gold, silver, precious stones, with those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. And my last point is this. The issue is not successfulness. That is not our goal. Our goal is not to be the best. Our goal is to do the best we can. What God is going to judge us by is not whether we've led a thousand people to faith or one, whether we build a mega church or have a small congregation. He's going to judge us on the basis of our faithfulness to him. He's not going to say, well done, thou good and successful servant. If that was the case, Isaiah would never be so considered. For he was sent to a people who weren't going to listen to him. Consider that calling. He would have been blessed with a small home group. But he would preach to the people who say, you know, Isaiah, I heard you, but I'm not interested. That's his ministry, although years down the road, you and I appreciate his writing ministry. But for the most part, the prophets were ignored. If Yeshua's ministry would be gauged by the means by which we oftentimes gauge our own ministry, he was extremely horrendous in what he did. Twelve people, all of whom leave him at his most critical point. That's not particularly successful. But that's not what his ministry was about. His ministry was to do the will of his father, whatever the results might be. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we doing what God wants us to do? Doesn't matter what the results are. What matters is that we do what God wants us to do. He may be saying, I want you out there on such and such a place, sharing the word. No one may respond. I want you spending a great deal of time putting together this website that will be really wonderful. No one may even look at it. God may want us to spend an inordinate amount of time, I dare say, no doubt, in prayer and reflection. And we may not even have a clue as to what the results of that might be. It may be for something we're never even told of. But our job is to be faithful to what God calls us to do, to be steadfast in what God is leading us to do. And he does it sometimes in different means than we might expect, like we saw how he repopulated the city. But whatever means he uses, it will involve all of us if the work is to be as complete as he would want it to be. Now, one final, final word. Sin is still a big problem in our lives. And as you will see in chapter 13 when we conclude, there's a need for another revival because despite all of Nehemiah's work, despite all of Nehemiah's grace, they still fall prey to rebelliousness against God. That's true for us as well. No matter how faithful we think we are, there will come a challenge to the core of our being. And it may be disruptive to our walk with him. We need to be on our guard because the evil one goes about like a roaring lion seeking whomsoever he may devour. Do not let it be you. Be vigilant. Be mindful. When the evil one shows up, flee his work. Flee his temptations, James tells us. Resist him in the faith. Put on the whole armor of God. Because we at Beth Ariel have an incredible challenge that is right around the corner. We're moving to Shabbat, as you know. We feel compelled to do this by the Lord. Some may not like the process by which we've come to the conclusion. God works in all kinds of ways. The issue is, this is what we believe and this is what we've come to see when we had our meeting the other week. We've got challenges afoot. And we need to hunker down together in our congregation, in our Jerusalem, as it were, and to utilize our gifts to encourage and lift up one another and to reach out to the community We're called to reach. That's our calling. That's what God wants us to be faithful in doing. It will mean sacrifice as we reorder and reorient our lives. For some, you'll come kicking and screaming, like those that got the lottery ticket and said, oh, I can't believe it, and you'll go. Some of us are going voluntarily and we're saying, hey, we're excited about it doesn't matter how we come. Let's just come together and devote ourselves to God for his work and for his purpose, because he will remember it and he will reward us for it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this lesson this day. Our desire, Lord, is to rely on your grace to enable Beth Ariel to be all that it is can be by your grace. Father, our desire is to see that our congregation will have a greater impact than it has ever had before in presenting the good news to Jewish people and in lifting up and encouraging all who come. Our desire, Father, is to be a congregation that is moving in unity and unison, empowered by your Spirit, utilizing our gifts, glorifying your name, and blessing one another and the world around us. May we not become encumbered by needing to be remembered. May we shine our lights so that those who see our good works will glorify our Father and not us. May we demonstrate our righteousness not before men, but before you. And may we do so, Lord, to honor you and to see that our congregation is as effective as it can be in proclaiming your truth throughout this greater Los Angeles area. Help us to do this, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name